day, or uh, I hope to be an interesting day of activities in regards to fellowship uh, following our service this morning. Uh, I just want to say to you, my, um, I was thinking standing back there, my heart's so full of the text this morning, I'll either get clogged up and have nothing, uh, or I'll be, so, uh, I'll be so all over the place it'll be hard for you to follow, but uh, the Lord has just really spoken to my heart through James chapter 2 this morning. And in his providence, it seems well-timed, uh, particularly because we've set aside a time for fellowship this morning, and it is so relevant uh, to how we fellowship as a church uh, and even how we receive others into our fellowship. Uh, it's all the more timely, I think, as well, because uh, the deepening of our fellowship, I think, is part of the armor uh, of the church especially in times of trial. So this passage, I was thinking of James uh, trying to hold in my mind the tension regarding uh, what he said from the beginning, people who were under trials or who are going through various trials. Uh, it makes, sometimes it makes what he's instructing against all the more likely. In fact, in times of trial, we may be tempted to uh, become narrow and exclusive in our fellowship. In fact, I was thinking this week that there's this funny thing about humans uh, trying, to, trying to sometimes employ biblical principles in their lives, but, but still having, uh, being of the flesh to some degree. The deeper we try to go with our fellowship, the more exclusive it becomes. Uh, because sometimes it gets narrower and narrower because there's so few who are willing to go deep. And once they, they get those who are willing to go deep, then they isolate themselves and nobody gets in. And so we've undermined the very, the very gospel uh, by trying to deepen our fellowship, which was a good thing. And so James brings a lot of wisdom to that, and I think it's particularly relevant uh, to us today. So let's read chapter 2 of James, verse 1 uh, through 13. And the kids, this will be their third time. We've gone through this three times. This will be their third time now. But uh, it seems as though it's just so applicable to where we are uh, as, a, as a people in general. James writes, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, here, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you are called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder... You have become a transgressor of the law. 
So then speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, help us this morning to hear, as always, such needed truth in our lives. Lord, thank you for your providence that you have brought us to this, this text on this day in this generation. And Lord, thank you for filling my soul this week through, the, through your word, through this particular passage of Scripture. And Father, I thank you for the weightiness I've been made to feel in regards to what James is saying here. And, and I pray that that would be transferred somehow by your spirit today into the hearts of everyone here. It is a day that we are emphasizing fellowship, Father, and I thank the deacons who, who initiated this uh, all together on their own, and even in your providence, I think uh, that was your plan. And so, Father, we pray that all these things will combine today, all the efforts of those involved, everything that's uh, being brought after the service and what we say here in this pulpit this morning and how it's heard. I, th I pray that all these things will combine together to communicate to us the peculiar love of Christ in his church. Lord, I pray that this would be a love that would distinguish us from those who visit with us, those who join with us, Father, from the world outside who may never come into this building, but they might distinguish us from the world by our love for one another. So help it be made true in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I just kind of go through this verse by verse, really, this morning. Uh, I tried uh, outlining that into really neat uh, points that you could all take home with you. But every time I would do that, I'd go back through it verse by verse, and I'd say there's so much in each verse um, that I'd have to outline every verse, do a sermon on every single verse. But the first one that really caught my attention, obviously, was the very first phrase, my brethren. He's talking here to the church. Uh, that's important because these are not expectations put upon those outside the church. Uh, what he's about to exhort is exhortation for the church. It's interesting to me that he goes on to say in regards to a personal attitude, but it is a, it is a church is made up of individuals, so he's speaking to the church in one sense, but in another sense he's speaking to you and I as members individually of the church. So he's not saying... He's not just saying church don't have personal favoritism. He's looking at every member of a church, those who are professing Christ, those who are born again. He's looking at every single one of us and saying to us in the strongest possible terms, do not hold your faith in Christ with a personal favoritism. And to me, that really brought it home this week because I could step back in some neutral position and evaluate whether the church at large is generally shows favoritism or are they doing pretty good. But this really drilled at home. What about you, Larry? How do you conduct yourself in the body of Christ? And that's his first thing. So it's the brethren. But then he, he says, do not... Hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's an extended description of Christ uh, that I didn't necessarily expect. Uh, he could have said very simply and made this point, do not hold your faith in Christ Jesus. Do not hold your faith in our Lord. But he seems like he's going out of his way to exalt the Lord in whom we've trusted. 
Our faith is in this one, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He seems to be drawing our attention to the greatness of Christ in the church as a, as a foundation for pushing back against this idea of personal favoritism. So I think when we think about that, we got to think about it in the context of the glory of Christ. I mean, the glory is just expansive. When he says glorious, it, it brings to my mind all the radiance of the manifest presence of God, creation itself, all reflecting this glorious person of Jesus Christ. He is exceedingly and infinitely glorious. That's whose church you are. That's who we belong to. That's, who, that's the one in whom we are holding our faith. He's reminding him of these things. Not only is he glorious, but he says here, he's Lord. That's, that suggests to me that he's communicating us the idea of our subjection to this glorious one. He is master. He, he gives the dictates and the guidelines and the direction in regards to the life of his church, not only in their actions, but in their affections as well. He is Lord of our lives. We are not lords benefiting from his glory to make our decisions in any way that we see fit in our carnality or in our fleshliness. We are, he is a glorious Lord and we are subject to the Lord as his people. That's who he's talking to. And then the word, the name Jesus really brings me to the, to the miracle of the incarnation. He is Christ. He is fully man. He is the Christ whom you knew walked the earth. That's the glorious Lord. It's not some imaginary or mythical figure. It's not some concept. It is a person, Jesus Christ, who is infinitely glorious and the Lord under whom you serve and live your life as a professing Christian. And he is the Christ. He is the anointed one sent from the Father through whom we have our life. I mean, so he's exalting Christ in the minds of his readers before he lays down the principles that he's about to lay down. And I think that's absolutely critical. You've heard me say before in my Christian life, I, I understand sometimes how we can get caught up and become prideful in a moment, but I honestly cannot understand how anyone who's ever encountered the glorious Lord Jesus Christ can go on for an extended periods of time with self-exaltation without being humbled by the very fact that you did it. I mean, that, that stuns me sometimes as to how we can do that because in my practice, it doesn't last long. <laughs> In fact, sometimes the Lord will use a lost person or to, to absolutely humble me. I shared Wednesday night this past week, he used a door-to-door -door salesman to humble me. You can't go on with that attitude if you hold fast in your mind and heart the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so James begins his instruction here. And he says, now, now do not hold your faith in this Lord with a personal favoritism. This is what struck me this week. The contrast of that is stunning. 
And he goes on to unfold a little bit about what that is. But this is to say that there, it is possible that someone in the church may be, have deceived themselves to the point that they would profess this glorious Lord Jesus Christ while at the same time navigating their Christian life in the walls of the church in regards to others with an attitude of personal favoritism. We read that sometimes and we read through that clip quickly and say, well, we all have our favorites. It's not that big a deal. I mean, obviously James don't want us to do it. It's more than that. You're, you're doing that while also proclaiming the infinitely glorious Christ as your Savior. By the way, there was nothing merited by, in us, there was no merit in us to provoke the love of Christ extended to us, right? He didn't look down and show favoritism and say, I like this one, I like this one, I like this one, they're really good. These other people, they're really bad. I'll save these. All were really bad. All were guilty before God and under condemnation and justly condemned to an eternal hell. And God in His grace and His unconditional love reached out and called a people out of that group to Himself. So if you hold personal favoritism, you're doing it in that environment. And that's what makes it stunning. Notice as well, he says in that first verse, it's in italics, but it picks up the idea in the Greek here. But he's talking about here, not just, not just the way you treat people, but an attitude. That, that's amazing to me. It's an attitude that you might carry within yourself as a general disposition while at the same time professing that you yourselves are a subject or a, a, a child of the king. One who is infinitely glorious. So he's what, what he's warning us against today is not so much the practice that manifests itself from that, but the attitude that produces that. Now this was hard for me because there is a sense in which in the world outside we are to be discerning. I mean, there are certain environments that I make judgments about in regards to the nature of the circumstances that it might not be a safe place for me to take my, my wife or my, my children or grandchildren into that environment. So we make discernments, but something here, there's an attitude at root here that he's speaking to. And he's warning us against this attitude, and it is simply that of personal favoritism. Notice as well, again, it's personal this is, to me, that was so subjective. Personal favoritism. I might personally, from personal reasons, favor one person, and you might, for personal reasons of your own, favor another person. I mean, it is a recipe for division in the church. If the church gathers and everybody is exercising or carrying with them an attitude of personal favoritism, we're going to click up in a minute. I mean, we're going to absolutely click up in a minute. I was sharing with the kids this morning, one of the blessings to me of the Christian life is that, is that some of my dearest brothers and sisters in Christ are people that I have almost nothing in common with outside of Christ. I mean, I, I love that because these are people that I would have never crossed paths with in my life apart from Christ because I wasn't coming to their church and they weren't coming to my bar. We would have never met each other 
because our common interests were nowhere near the same. They're in completely different worlds than I was in. But in the church, God calls us out from all different walks of life, brings us in with all different common practices and traditions that we all have, and we get exposed to people not like us. I think for the express purpose of driving us down to the bottom of our unity, which is Christ himself. And if we don't get there, you never know fellowship. Let me just say that I, I believe that that is the deacons, that has been their motivation for providing for this today. What, what, they're, what they're encouraging is a growing and a deepening and a widening fellowship in the body of Christ. And as elders, we, we heartedly agree with that with an expanded purpose of realizing that that's necessary. It is a necessity for you to stand as the world moves against everything you believe. Where you've got roots where you've got a refuge to flee among the people of God and to go together with one another deep into Christ and find strength and solace to face the fires of persecution. It is critical to your survival and perseverance as Christians. It's not just so we can have a good meal and some good chats. There's more underneath what we're doing today than just that. So he says to them this personal favor Notice in verses 2 and 3, he gives an example here. By the way, I think, I think James is in some ways speaking ironically later, but he lays out this because he says for. It doesn't necessarily say he's observed this, but he at least anticipates that this might be your response in the church. Maybe he just knows human nature. Maybe he knows that that human nature is quicker to manifest itself in times of trial. But listen to the example he gives. For if a man, as a personal favoritism, for if a man comes into your assembly, notice that's the church. He's visiting, I, I, me and Hope were talking, I said it like this. If a man comes to church this morning and he's got a nice coat and a, a gold ring, I, I, I didn't want to shock y'all this morning, but you know what I started to do? I started to get out my work clothes. It's got a chainsaw rip in the knee of them and got chainsaw oil at the pockets and put on my raggediest shirt and come to this pulpit. And to make the point that when you saw me, you, you made a judgment. It's almost impossible for us to do that. I figured you would be shocked. The tile's bad enough. But that's essentially what he's saying. If a man comes into your church, I'll use the word, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. And you pay special attention. I was reading one of the little more literal translations, and it used the phrase here, and if you look to this one, and it, and it suggested to me, my eyes beheld him. I saw that uh, it's literally bright suit. If a man in a bright suit and a big gold ring comes into your assembly and a poor man in dirty clothes and you look to the bright suit and the gold ring and you, not only now you've looked, you've identified, you've evaluated, now you're going to act upon that attitude and you're going to say to him, come over here and sit in this good spot. We've got a place for you. 
It's been years and years, and all the people involved in this have, have gone on to be with the Lord. I pray all have. But I remember years ago in the deacons' meeting, and someone had visited the church, and I didn't know them, and some of the other deacons didn't, but one did know them, and they were very, very prosperous. I found out later, exceedingly prosperous. And we had a program to where we tried to follow up on visitors. If they filled out a visitor card, one of the deacons would contact them someday the next week and say, hey, we're glad you came Sunday. And so we had that program going. But I don't remember deacons meetings where somebody said, uh, reminded us, hey, make sure you contact that. It was just a given. But when this guy came in, somebody in the deacons meeting spoke up and said, did anybody contact this guy? And, and there was a little bit of a silence. And then they said, somebody needs to definitely contact this guy. I mean, this guy, I mean, he's, a, he's an advantage to the church. This guy, and then he went on to describe this guy. And, I, and my mind as a young deacon went immediately to this passage. This is exactly what he's talking about. You, you just did exactly what James warned you not to be doing. The man with the gold robe and the, or the robe and the gold ring drew my attention because he was flashy and he looked like there was promise or something to be gained from him. And I looked to him and then the, that provoked me to invite him to the high place. Contrast that with what you did with the poor. The implication, because you're looking at the rich man with all of his splendor, indicates to me that you're not looking at the poor man. You can't look at both of those at the same time. But the poor man didn't draw your attention for more than a moment, and you identified him really quickly. You evaluated him, made your judgments in your heart based, to, based upon him, turned immediately to the rich man, brought him to this exalted place, and you learned, turned to the poor man, and you say, listen to this, you go stand over there, preferably. First of all, it struck me, one gets to sit, one has to stand. In fact, they're, they're merciful because they say, or if you, if you must sit down at all, sit, sit down on the floor near my footstool. No chair for you. In fact, I think I'll just discourage you from staying at all. We don't want you comfortable here because we've evaluated and we've determined that we don't think you are of any value to us or to me personally in this case. So go over there and stand. Go over there and stand. I remember an experience years ago, and again, a young man, disheveled, didn't look like he was all that clean, came in and sat just about back there where, towards that corner. And had a ball cap on, a long hair, ponytail sticking out of it, hanging down about half his back. And, and someone in the church came to me and said, either you go tell him to take his hat off or I will. And, and my dander got up. And I, I could feel my ears turn red. And, and I said, let, let me say something. You leave him alone. I said, let me preach the gospel let me pray that the Lord would open his hearts to the glories of Christ and he'll take his own hat off. I'm not taking it off for him. He don't know Christ. But if you go tell him to take it off, if he don't leave now, you've probably seen him the last time. He's not coming back into this place. That was a judgment call made upon an appearance. And that guy was almost like the poor guy that came in with the dirty clothes and you said, how about standing over there somewhere? Or at best, take a seat near my footstool because we don't want you anywhere near this rich man that we've invited to come up close. It's not the first time 
this incident has been spoken to. Jesus did, and many times you remember he's talking about giving a feast. And he was watching as the people came in. And they were taking the higher seats and he endorsed them. No, when you come and you're invited to a wedding banquet, take the lowest seat. That way that if someone greater than you comes in, they don't come up and say, hey, how about backing down a little bit? This guy's more important than you. So take the lower seat and then maybe they'll call you up farther. Jesus also also spoke to the issue of that many times. In fact, he said, when you throw a banquet yourself, don't invite your family (laughs) And, and all, the, all these people that you have acquaintances with and, and the rich in the community, all those people can pay you back if, no, if with nothing else but their presence. Rather, buy, invite people who have no capabilities whatsoever in, in emotion or in currency to pay you back. Feed them heartily, love on them greatly, and let them go their way without having paid a single cent for that. And guess what? You'll be rewarded in heaven. So Jesus is laying down this same principle. In fact, Later on, he talks about, and the reason I call this peculiar love is because I think that's what's underneath all of this. But Jesus says of his disciples, if you love one another as I have loved you, this is what will distinguish you in the world. That's the distinguishing mark of the Christian is their love for one another. It's an uncommon kind of love. It is not a love that evaluates like these men, these persons were doing. And what's stunning is his diagnosis of this scenario. By the way, I think it's a scenario. I think you could reverse that and it would be the same wrongful attitude. There are those, he mentions later, who have been abused by the rich. They have a chip on their shoulder against the rich. And they would actually prefer the poor man just to spite the rich man. Poor man, you come up here. Hey, rich guy, we don't care about you around here. We're not impressed. Go stand in the corner. Is that the same attitude? Sounds the same to me. In fact, I think that's the irony of what he goes on to say to them here. But when you do that, essentially verse 1 or 2 and 3, he says to them, when you do this, this personal favoritism, you have made distinctions among yourselves. In fact, I think you could say the word judgment. You have demonstrated that you have made evaluations in regards to the value of two different men here. You've made distinctions. You've divided yourselves out. Obviously, if you're making the judgment, you have an ideal of where you fit in your scheme. If, you're, if you think you're way down on the pole, you might be resentful for somebody up higher. Or you might be way down on the pole and you, you have aspirations to move up higher and you befriend the rich guy because you think you might have an avenue through him to, to climb the ladder yourself. So your evaluation is completely subjective. You have made distinctions among yourselves. This is the body of Christ. What distinctions should you be making? We are one in Christ We have the same Savior. We have the same lack of merit in and of ourselves. We were under the same condemnation. We are under the same Lord and the same grace and the same mercy and the same faith. But now you've disregarded that as the body of Christ and you're making distinctions now among yourselves. He's preferable to Him. That involves a judgment. That involves something 
going on in the mind. And he, become, he says that next. You have made distinctions among yourselves and have become judges. I was sharing with somebody this morning. When I was reading that this week, I don't know if you hear the excoriating nature of what he's saying there. You are brethren. You are you are the children of the Most High God. You have a glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And then when these people who are infinitely lower in their glory walk into your presence, you make judgments in regards to who is to be valued here. That is judgment and it is evil. Absolute evil. Because you are evaluating another human being's worth in that moment. I wrote in my notes, just using his example here, the rich man. What advantage might be gained in the heart of a person exercising personal favoritism? What might be gained by embracing the rich man? Maybe it was social acceptance. If they're in an environment under trials and they're not particularly accepted in the community, if they can get an, a rich guy to embrace them, they can bridge the gap societally and the society might, through the rich man, become to accept the church more so, which would result in less trials and less suffering for the church. So if we can ingratiate to ourselves the rich men in the community, they're the ones in the positions of power and influence. And if they have a positive attitude about us, they can influence their friends. And pretty soon the culture will accept us and we can, we can have our faith freely in the community. Well, it's not a bad thing to want to be able to practice your faith in freedom. But it is a bad thing to exercise personal favoritism to accomplish that. That is pure pragmatism. Another thing might be your own selfish personal wealth. I want to get rich. I like right, rich people. Bring a rich man over next to me because I'd like to have some conversations. Hey, maybe I can get with him and befriend him and we can establish some networks and I can profit from his reputation. I might advance my own personal greed by manipulating or using the rich man. Maybe. Might just simply be power and influence. You know how nepotism is in our generation. Drop the right name, you can open the right door. Oh, did I, did I bother to tell you that the rich man who came in the other day with the bright robe and the big ring, I'm, I'm good buddies with him. I mean, my inclination would be to say, so. But that, but that might be a reason that they might prefer the rich man. Prestige, reputation, as I said, networking. And for all the same reasons, they might have rejected the poor man. He, he's not going to give me any of these things. So associating with him, if anything, will alienate me from the more prosperous people and the more comfortable and satisfying and palatable people around in the community. In fact, if he comes into this church, he might actually be a burden. Listen, this is tough. Because as one who's been at the church, when many people have come by here who were poor and disheveled and dirty and torn clothes and, and they wanted some financial help, there's no doubt in my mind that 80% of those were simply exploiting their view of the church's necessity of being charitable. They were, they, were, they were rolling the dice whether or not this church would fulfill their expectations that the church is a place where I should be able to get help. They had no low love for us. They had no desire or interest in the gospel. They saw the church as merely a place that they could exploit to meet their present need. 
whether that be food or drugs. And so I can take the attitude and say, well, rich men don't do that. I don't know of any wealthy people that stopped by and, and, and inquired about the church so that they could take advantage and exploit the church to get richer. So I might have used all these justifications and reasoned out in my mind. In fact, one word he uses later means that's the exact thing. You reasoned out in your mind that the rich man is more potentially profitable to me personally. So I will prefer him. The poor man, he is of no profit to me at all. And I reject him and put him to the side. Who is at the center of those evaluations? Me and my personal aspirations. And that's what makes that sort of judge evil. Evil. That's not, James doesn't mince words here. He doesn't say that's not desirable. He says in that moment, the, the, the calculations you have made and the, and the segregation you just done in your own mind and acted upon, these things are judgments in regards to the value of the one created in God's own image. And in doing so, you are evil judges. That's how serious this is. It's not a matter of, I think I like these folks better. It's not, that, it's not that simple because you're undermining the very core principle of the love of Christ upon which the church itself is built. None of us came into the body of Christ because we were rated to be of more value than someone else. And if you flip this thing, the poor are not more valuable because they're poor. Neither the rich less valuable because they happen to be rich. We were all of unequal value in terms of our own merit, but Christ's love saves us. And for us as the body of Christ to, to exercise or to live our lives in, in fellowship with that sort of personal favoritism is a contradiction in terms of what we're about as the church. And that's serious. He goes on in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor? Here's where I think it's partly irony. Because all the poor are not going to be inherited in the kingdom of heaven. And it's clear that all the rich are not going to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven either. So I think he's using the irony. Obviously it's true the scriptures say, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? What, God, what standards God using here? Not yours. You just chose the rich and rejected the poor. God's obviously your evaluation standard is hugely different from God's because God chose the one by his own word. He chose the one that you rejected. Yet you call yourselves his children. Did he not choose the poor of this world? How many are there wealthy and how many wise and mighty and noble? How many of those have come into the kingdom, Paul says? Yes, God chooses the simple things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the poor of this world to be infinitely, unbelievably rich in their inheritance. But that same poor man, you told to go stand somewhere else. Sit on the floor. You're of no value here. While God says he's of eternal value or God has assigned to him an eternal value in calling him to himself. On the contrary, this is how they reason. In fact, he says in verse 6, having done that, 
You've dishonored the poor man. You have literally devalued the poor man whom God has valued. He chose them out of the world. He, he honored them by choosing them, and you look at them, disregard them, and devalue the one God had valued. Then he goes, this is the irony part of it, I think. He says, is it not the rich man, the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Look, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have called? To me, the irony here is that's who you chose. You rejected who God chose, and you chose the one who, who is coming against you at every point. They're the ones dragged. Poor men don't take you to court. They can't afford the lawyer. They don't drag you in the courts. They usually yield to whatever abuse they're having because they have not the resources to challenge for their rights. So they, rarely does a poor man drag you in the court. And he's saying to them, it's the rich man who takes you in the court. Not only that, but he blasphemes the fair name. by He doesn't even like Christians. And you bring him into your fellowship and as soon as you see him, you prefer him. It's not even rational by your own standards. That's the irony of it. God chooses the poor, you reject the poor. God condemns the rich in their self-exaltation, you choose them. You honor the one whom God dishonors by, by, the, by breaking them of their riches, as James already talked about this, their the glory and their humiliation, but yet you choose the one who in their humble state is looking to God. You, you're, you're doing it reverse from the God whom you claim to serve. That's the devastating sin of personal preferences. You've dishonored the poor man. He's not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Then he says to them, if, here's the alternative, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. That's, all, that's what to be, ought to be employed in this manner. Not personal favoritism, but look upon the poor and the rich and love your neighbor. Not making your own valuation in regards to their value or your own estimation in regards to their value on outward appearances and your own selfish interests, but to look upon both the rich and the poor as those created in the image of God for whom in God's graciousness He died. And my role here is to communicate this saving Christ to the rich and to the poor, not to discriminate and to value them in my own heart and thereby exploit them for my own gain. This is the alternative, fulfilling the royal law, the law of the king. This is the law of the king. You remember that Jesus was asked by the religious leader trying to trap him, which is the greatest commandment? You remember what he says? You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And liken to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two, he says, hang all the prophets and the commands. That's exactly not what they're doing. That's the, this personal favoritism undermines that and is in contradiction to that principle. He says if you're doing that, you're fulfilling the royal law, you're doing well. But then he goes on, but he says, but if you are, verse 9, but if you show this partiality, this is what I shared with the kids. The kids. It's not a quirk. It's not to be written off to the flesh as, well, we're not sanctified yet. It is sin. 
I, I don't know how much more weighty that can be. In fact, he goes on to say, if you reject this royal law, if you reject this kind of unconditional love, then you move yourself out from under the very love by which you have been saved. And therefore, the only thing left for you to be judged by is the Mosaic law. And that law says there, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you will stand guilty before that without mercy, he says. So take, don't, don't let us make the mistake of thinking that carrying around with us and acting upon a personal attitude of favoritism based upon how we and ourselves have valued other human beings is something to be taken lightly. It is sin, and apart from the grace and mercy of God, it will, it will bring about eternal condemnation, the harshest of judgments. That's why I said this week that my heart was full of this passage. This is not just a cheery little letter to the church to give them a little boost of encouragement. This is serious, life-altering reality in which the church needed to take seriously, especially in an environment where trials would come upon them because they might in their temptation to ease their own comfort favor the rich man because of what he might be able to provide in regards to security for the church. They may have good motives of wanting to see the church be well and not be harmed or suffer, but, but by evaluating people according to their own perspectives in regards to their value, move them to act in self and favoritism and lifting up one above the other. You know what was interesting about this as well to me? We don't have any indication here in his example or if he actually saw this happening that they knew either one of them. They didn't know the rich man. They didn't know the poor man. For all they knew, the rich man could be a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. He could be exploiting his own wealth as a means to infiltrate the church and spy on them and report it to the authorities that they're doing something wrong. They didn't know either of these men. Apparently, they just on pure outward appearances and on selfish motives made distinctions among these men, valued one and devalued the other. And let me tell you with all my heart, there is no place among the people of God for that sort of evaluation of human souls. No place for it. James says it right. That's sin. That's purely outright in the face of God, hypocritical in that you are in an environment where the unconditional love of God saved you, and that is sin, and it will bring about eternal condemnation for those who choose not, he says later on, to live by the law of liberty. In fact, you say, well, it's just that one, Larry, well, he answers that as well. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery said also do not commit murder. Now, if you did not commit a murder, you're not thereby acquitted if you, quit, if you committed adultery. Well, I didn't murder anybody. <laughs> yeah, but you did commit adultery. Well, is there a special law for adulterers? Because I, I don't think it's just for me to suffer as a murderer. You sinned. <laughs> If you, if you sin in one account, you sin in all accounts. You are guilty of the entire weightiness of the law. And apart from Christ, that is a scary place to be. And if you're out from under Christ and this love of Christ by which you have been born again, you have nothing awaiting you but that severe judgment. Mercy will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy. 
That's what James is establishing. So his final exhortation in verse 12, and I would take for us as well, we're in the body of Christ individually now. So speak, so speak then, and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. That's, I think that he's speaking there of Christ. The love that is to characterize the church. We're not looking at a hard, condemning law. We're looking into the law as it relates to our relationship with Christ. And we're seeing the command to love one another and love our neighbors and love even our enemies. And we are yielding under that command, as it were, this new commandment in some sense that Jesus has given the body of Christ. This distinguishing love that makes us recipients of His love and also aqueducts for His love being extended outwardly. So then, so act as those who are abiding by that law. Receiving of the love of Christ and letting the love of Christ flow out to them for the rich man and the poor man who comes into our assembly. That was one of the striking things about Because you could narrow this down and say, okay, Diamond Hill, the doors are going to be open this Sunday or next Sunday and some folks are going to come and visit. And you've never met any of them. And one of them may be dirty and look like they've come out from somewhere in the woods and another may be distinguished in a suit and tie. Don't you dare make personal evaluations in regards to the value of that soul. Love them. Love them. Can you do that in different ways? Maybe so. Are there different expressions for that? Maybe so. But do you love them or did you exclude one because of the way they look? Merely by outward appearances. That, that's what makes this, to me, exceedingly sinful because it is so carnal in its origin. It is so rooted in my fleshly lust, which I am trying to put to death as a Christian, and to go on acting in that way is only to feed that very thing that I would, 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 would die in me, but yet to make it stronger. And all the while move myself out from under, as it were, the love of Christ. Verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. I love the last passage, but mercy triumphs over judgment. It did in our case. When Christ came to me, mercy triumphed over judgment because what I was due, the evaluation made by the eternal God was that I was worthy of condemnation without merit in myself whatsoever. Judgment was upon me, but mercy triumphed over judgment, not because it found worth in me, because, but because it wanted to display the worth of the one who created me. That's the glory of the church. That's the glory of the church. And if, if I'm a recipient of such grace and mercy, how dare I regard others with favoritism and evaluate them on some other standard than that which I have been evaluated by my merciful God? I don't know how there's any other option but mercy. And let me just conclude with saying that's what today's fellowship is about. It's about building relationships and deepening our relationships and dependency and love for one another in the common theme of the un infinitely glorious, unfathomable love of Christ to, that brought about our new birth and is the basis for that fellowship. 
Small talk has its place. I'm not suggesting that we all have a theological debate as we fellowship. It has its place. But it's only to the point of introducing us to one another that we might grow more comfortable talking with one another, that we might go with one another deeper into the glorious truths of God and be transformed by those things. And all the efforts from mulch to, to, to meat to vegetables to tables, all everything combined together is to that end. And to fall short of that will be to discourage the very ones who have hoped so much for it. And so I just pray that as we do that after the service today, you'll take advantage of that opportunity. Let me challenge you this way. If you see someone who's gathered and stays with us for this that you've never met or spoken to, make a special effort to go speak to them. Value them differently than you might have previously. Realize that they are a creation of God. They are image bearers. At the very minimum, they reserve respect. But at a maximum, they deserve our expressions of Christ's love towards them. And if you're, vis- if, if you're a newer folks or visiting with us or something and you see an older member that you've never spoke to, make an effort to do that. Does us no good to do like Jesus said, get together with friends and acquaintances and rich folks. <laughs> I mean, we're getting paid back for the very thing we're doing. I like that person. They met with me. I had a good lunch together. I got paid back for that. I found great satisfaction in that. Reach out to those from whom you expect no payment, but whom you love with the love of Christ. Stand with me this morning. Again, invite you. I want to, before I do that, just we'll say our blessing here. But I want to thank everybody who is involved, obviously the deacons uh, with whom this, this ministry originated. Uh, I thank you for God's providence in that the deacons independently are thinking about things uh, that the elders have been talking about as well. And so all these things come together, all those who've contributed anything uh, to what you'll, you'll be able to enjoy today. So thank you for those folks and thank you for, uh, thank you for staying with us and just uh, fellowshipping with us. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this almost incomprehensible love of Christ. Lord, not only did we have no value in merit in and of ourselves, in fact, we were all the more deserving of condemnation for the very reason that we are created in your image. But even in our sin, Christ loved us and died for us. And I pray that our fellowship today would would reflect reflect us as those who have experienced this unconditional love. And Lord, we don't expect some plunge into the depths of Christian fellowship in one day, but Father, I do pray that this will be a, a brick in the bridge, as it were, a stone in the span. Lord, I pray that through fellowship and through growing in our relationship with you and together that we'll be equipped and Set, set apart to stand in this difficult world, Father, everything it seems theologically and philosophically and every other way is coming against the, the, the long-held beliefs and convictions of the church. And we get a sense in our spirit that it won't be long till that will not be tolerated at all. And we see that day quickly approaching. So, Father, we pray that you would use times and mornings and days like these to to equip us to stand, as it were, to be putting on our armor 
Lord, thank you for the body of Christ, for the, for the richness and the blessing of that these many years for me and for many others represented here. Lord, we thank you for those relationships. Lord, we thank you for difficult times and for times of great joy. For in all these things, we have grown not only closer to one another, but together closer to you. We pray that that will continue and that it will expand out into the larger attending membership of Diamond Hill. We want everyone here to know the depth and the riches and the knowledge of the love of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.